Without the Bible, where would we be as Christians? We wouldn't have the evidence of a Savior who loves us, a Savior who gave Himself for us. We wouldn't have the understanding of the way He lived and the way He wants us to live. We wouldn't even have the promise of His return. We wouldn't be able to look forward to that day when we can spend eternity with Him. The Scriptures are important to us as Christians. Amen? And today we're going to be talking about the secrets of ancient scrolls. Um, In the next few minutes we're going to be talking about some of the ways that God answered the critics of the Scriptures. Because you know the Bible has always had critics, hasn't it? It seems as though the brightest minds, the most educated institutions have been pointing their attacks at the Scriptures for centuries, and yet the Bible still stands. And today we're going to be looking at why the Bible still stands, looking at some of the evidence for how the Bible was preserved and how we can find it trustworthy. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me for an additional word of prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for being a seeker after our hearts. Thank you for calling us today, for bringing us today, for, for preserving our lives today to hear that voice, our conscience, your spirit speaking to our hearts. Today, as we open your word, as we consider history, as we consider the Bible, we want to pray that you would speak to us, that you would help us to leave here with greater confidence and greater assurance. And not only the word that we hold in our hands, but the Jesus that that word describes to us. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. About the end of the 18th century, Sir Edward Gibbon wrote his masterful work on the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Now, this is a landmark work in Roman history, but particularly of interest to us for our subject this morning, Gibbon made some rather rather sweeping statements about the veracity of the Scriptures. This was a growing trend in the educational elite and the academic world in Gibbon's time. Edward Gibbon wrote in the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire that early Christian leaders had not quite been satisfied with the story of Jesus. And so they had gone to make their own adjustments. In fact, he said they had with rash and sacrilegious hands conveniently tampered with the original manuscripts. This was, a, was a, an, an opening of a door that would continue throughout the next hundred years or so as one after another, educated men, scholars began to doubt and question whether the scriptures were authentic, whether they could be trusted. F.C. Bauer, Ferdinand Christian Bauer of Tübingen, declared nearly all of the books of the New Testament to be unauthentic. Now, what did he mean by unauthentic? This would have been about the middle of the 1800s. By unauthentic, Bauer meant that, that the books could not have been written at the time which Christians believed them to have been written, nor could they have been written by the authors which the Bible claimed had written the books. He gave a few exceptions. In all of the books of the New Testament, this professor at Tübingen wrote that only Paul's letters to the Romans, the Corinthians, and the Galatians appeared to be authentic. The rest were just forgeries. 
Somebody decided to make up something nice, pass it along as scripture, and it became accepted and as part of the culture or the lore of Christianity. Bauer was not alone. Wilhelm Christian von Manen in Holland joined the radical criticism school of thought, and he went even further saying that none of the New Testament books, none, not one, None of the New Testament books, according to Manon, von Manon, were written in the first century or by anyone who had any first-hand knowledge or experience in the things of the life of Christ. That's what was being claimed. None of the books were written in the first century or by anyone who had a first-hand knowledge of the things they contained. At Cambridge University, Richard Porson was similarly challenging the New Testament he was, he was drawing doubt as to whether these books could possibly have been written by the people they claimed to have been written by or at the time that it was claimed that they had been written. Now, around this same time, discoveries were being made that would uh, press the New Testament's critics onto their heels. And we're going to be looking at that here this morning. We're going to be looking at how discoveries actually open the door to a new understanding of the New Testament, particularly, and its authenticity or veracity. And I'm just going to, I'm going to see if we can't... Uh, well, maybe we're okay. A New Testament... Uh, well, a, a German professor by the name of Constantin Tischendorf was listening to all this that was being said about the New Testament and about its unreliability. Even though he was educated at the University of Leipzig, who was, uh, which was another university that was largely involved in this higher critical thought, Tischendorf belie- uh, dreamed of finding evidence that would support the authenticity of the Bible. He had studied the Scriptures... He had studied the writings of Paul, and he saw the common threads. He saw their unity. He saw how how even though they had been written by different authors, there was a unity of thought and of purpose. There was a a, 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 um, a, a harmony between the various parts of the New Testament, and he believed the the New Testament to be authentic. But where could evidence be found to prove its accuracy and legitimacy? And so Constantin Tischendorf began what would be a life work. His magnum opus, what he wanted to accomplish in life, was simply to draw attention to evidence that suggested that these critics of the Bible were wrong. These critics of the Bible were attacking something that they didn't know what they were attacking. And so at that time, the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament were apparently from the 4th and 5th centuries. Now, this would be about 300 years, a third of a millennium after the events they wrote about, right? Jesus walked here on earth um, between, well, you know, sometime around 0 A.D., I guess, or 1 A.D. is when we would expect His birth to be. That's at least one of the reasons the date was set. But the, uh, the time period of His ministry was somewhere around 31 A.D., 27 A.D. to 31 A.D., 30. Uh, and so forth. So there's a, there's a, the early first century was the time period of the story of Christ. We believe as Christians, and the Christians in Tischendorf's day believed as well, that the, 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 the bulk of the New Testament would have been written in the latter half of the first century. So between about 50 AD and 100 AD, the New Testament would have been written. The critics were saying, no, it's impossible. 
these manuscripts, the oldest manuscript you can find, is from the 4th century, 300 years later. It's impossible these would have been written. And so there's four manuscripts, four manuscripts that Tischendorf began to study. And um, he began studying these four manuscripts from the 4th and 5th centuries. The first was the Codex of Alexandrinus. And this was owned by the British Museum. Also, there was the Codex Claremontinus, which was owned by the Library of Paris. And so, uh, Tischendorf went to London, to the British Museum. He went to Paris, to the, uh, the Library of Paris. He studied these, these manuscripts, but they were both incomplete. Neither of them had the entire New Testament, even though they were from the 4th or 5th century. There was another manuscript that Tischendorf knew about. This was the Codex Vaticanus, and the Vaticanus t uh, scrolls were kept in the Vatican, of course. That's why it was named this. And the Vatican did not allow the Codex Vaticanus to be studied by any Protestant scholar, which Tischendorf was. And so this was a significant barrier to Tischendorf's being able to examine it, probably one of the more complete of the manuscripts. In the end, Tischendorf was extremely persistent, and finally, the caretakers at the Vatican allowed Tischendorf to spend six hours, six hours, with the Codex Vaticanus, and um, he was able to compare what he had learned from the Alexandrinus and the Claremontinus. And uh, the fourth manuscript was the Codex of Frami, and this was a this was a very challenging work because the Codex of Frami was um, actually a. a a part of Scripture, part of the New Testament, that had been erased probably several centuries after it was written. So imagine, written on parchment or vellum, and then erasing it, maybe with mechanical means, maybe with some chemical means, but then over it were the writings, the philosophies of an Orthodox, a Syrian Orthodox theologian by the name of Ephraim. And so it was erased and written over. So imagine trying to figure out what was written underneath the writings of Ephraim. Very difficult. And uh, Tischendorf began studying these manuscripts and poring over them very, very carefully, painstakingly examining and comparing. And he produced what he thought was a little bit more accurate Greek New Testament, a little more accurate than, uh, than Erasmus had been 300 years earlier or so. And even the German uh, Karl Lachmann had produced only a, a decade or two before. But he realized he hadn't really found much new evidence. He hadn't really discovered much that would convince the critics that the New Testament was reliable, that it was authentic. Its authority was still lacking. Significant portions of the New Testament were simply missing from all of these four major documents. Could there be older documents to be found? Could there be evidence, manuscripts yet to be discovered? If there was, if there were to be these evidences or manuscripts, Tischendorf was determined that he would discover them, that he would find them. And so he went on a journey. His search for a New Testament certainty led Tischendorf to some of the oldest monasteries of the world. He wrote, but that in some recess of the Greek or Coptic, Syrian or Armenian monasteries, there might be some precious manuscript slumbering for ages in dust and darkness. Can you sort of see what Tischendorf was imagining? In his mind's eye, he knew there, there just has to be something out there. Of course, he didn't know that it existed. It was all a figment of his imagination at this point. 
But it was bugging him. It was driving him. There might be some manuscript, some precious manuscript slumbering for ages in dust and darkness. Well, in 1838, he read about the, the celebrated American um, archaeologist, Dr. Edward Robinson, who reported that in St. Catherine's Monastery, there was an extensive collection of the most ancient manuscripts imaginable. And so in 1844, 18, early 1844, Tischendorf set off to Egypt, determined to examine these manuscripts. It was in March of 1844 that Tischendorf arrived in Cairo. He was met there by some monks from the St. Catherine's Monastery. Now, the St. Catherine's Monastery is a very interesting place. It's right at the foot of Mount Sinai, the traditional place where uh, we believe, or the churches believe, that Mount Sinai was located. It's one of the oldest continuously inhabited monasteries in the world. It's one of the two oldest in the world. It may be the oldest continuously inhabited monastery in the world. It was founded by the Christian emperor Justinian in the early 6th century, something around 538, something around that period. In 625, the monks of St. Catherine sent emissaries to Muhammad himself. This is the start of the Islam religion, right? The religion of Islam. The, 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 the monks at St. Catherine sent emissaries to Muhammad himself seeking his protection. Even though they were Christian, they determined that they would not get into these battles we call the Crusades. They wanted to remain neutral. They were Christian, but they would, they would stay loyal to the powers of the region, and that was... Uh, they were the followers of Muhammad. Um, by the way, Mount Sinai and this monastery is located right in the Sinai Peninsula, near the tip of the Sinai Peninsula. And um, this is where they, uh, they found their, their protection from Muhammad. Every year, the monks would renew their allegiance to Muhammad. Every year. For 500 years, even in, even in 1115, the year 1115, during the Crusades by King Baldwin they specifically asked the Christian king not to stop and to visit the Christian monastery because of the political challenges that it would bring to them. They were determined that they would remain neutral even though they were right in the middle of this, this uh, Muslim world. And so this is the story of how the monastery has been continuously inhabited longer than any other Christian monastery. Interestingly, at the base here of Mount Sinai and within the walls of the monastery is a bush that is believed to be still the, I don't know if you'd call it the descendant or the remains or what you would call it, but um, it's still the burning bush that Moses, at which Moses met God and had this communication with him. And if you believe that, I have, well, we won't go there, but I, I kind of have some skepticism about the validity of this being the burning bush, but at any rate, um, it could have been the region in which Moses met God, for sure. It was probably in this area that he was tending sheep. And so here at the St. Catherine's Monastery, Tischendorf uh, arrived in early 1844, and he found that there were so many piles of ancient manuscripts that, get this, there were, there were, there were barrels of them being used to start fires. And Tischendorf was aghast as he sees this. He had come to, to look in the library, you know, go through the, 
the, the, the stacks of manuscripts in the library, and, and you imagine looking at these ancient manuscripts in different languages, in Syriac and Aramaic and, and uh, Greek and in Hebrew, and, and trying to dis- discover what they were and if they were parts of Scripture, perhaps. You'd have to know the Bible pretty well, wouldn't you? To be able to decipher word by word and understand word by word and decide, hey, this is, this is from Deuteronomy. This is from the Gospel of John. Or this is simply some philosopher's writings where he might use some similar words or phrases. I mean, if you understand, this was a challenge. So it's not something you just go in and, and you know, Google it, and uh, now you've found whether these manuscripts exist. No, he was going through the library, but he found he didn't just have to go through the library. Every nook and cranny of this large monastery compound, he was looking to find if there were manuscripts like the ones he found when he first entered, being used to start fires, perhaps. And so he began searching through the monastery, and toward the, end of, toward the end of May, he felt that he had found the pearl of his researches. He says, I perceived in the middle of the great hall a large and wide basket full of parchments. And the librarian, who was a man of information, told me that two heaps of papers like these, moldered by time, had already been committed to the flames." What was my surprise to find amid this heap of papers a considerable number of sheets of a copy of the Old Testament in Greek, which seemed to me to be the most ancient I had ever seen. And of the 200, almost 300 pages of these manuscripts, the monks at St. Catherine's allowed him to take home 43 of these manuscripts. And from this, he went home and formed the Codex Federico Augustanus, in honor of the king of Saxony, who had paid for his expenses to travel to Egypt. But you know, having returned with these portions of the Old Testament, which was good, Tischendorf simply wasn't satisfied. What he was looking for was evidence about the New Testament. And once again, he was not content in believing that there could not be some manuscript in some place in the, in the monastery or elsewhere where he could find. And so in 1853, he set off again, almost nine years later, visiting monasteries in Lilia and Cairo and Alexandria and Jerusalem and Laodicea and Smyrna and in Constantinople. This guy was determined, wasn't he? He was going wherever he could find ancient monasteries. And, and finally, he made his way back again to St. Catherine's on the, in the shadow of Mount Sinai. And um, as he... As he travels again to St. Catherine's. When he arrives there, they actually pretended or feigned ignorance of knowing anything about the manuscripts that he had discovered the last time he was there. Whether they didn't want him to see it, whether he was a, they were afraid he would try to take more of them away, we don't know. But the monks and librarians at St. Catherine's simply um, claimed that they didn't even know about the manuscripts that he had left behind. So after spending some time again at St. Catherine's, he left empty-handed, but he had found information at these other places where he had stopped, so uh, Tischendorf went back home, and from his work, he was able to produce some writings. Back home, guess what? Tischendorf could not get St. Catherine's out of his mind. He knew there was something there more than they were letting on. He knew that, he knew that they probably weren't giving him all the information that, um, that they themselves knew. And so, finally, Tischendorf begins planning a third trip to Egypt. 
back to St. Catharines. This time he was, his trip was financed by the Tsar of Russia. He arrived at St. Catharines and began going through what manuscripts they would let him see. Again, they didn't seem to be giving him much information. He became discouraged. He told his traveling companions, we're going to stay here three more days. And after three more days, if we don't find something significant to study, we're going back to Cairo. We're going back to Germany. Those three days would prove very pivotal in the history of Christianity. Those three days, in those three days, he uncovered 346 parchments that included a codex containing the Old and New Testaments in their entirety, all written in the same handwriting. Nothing like this had ever been seen in the history of scholarship. Neither the, he wrote his wife, it is the only such manuscript in the world. Neither the Codex Vaticanus nor the London Alexandrinus contains the whole New Testament, and the Sinai Codex is undoubtedly older than both. This discovery is a remarkable occurrence and a great one for Christian knowledge. Tischendorf had finally discovered what he had been looking for. He now held in his possession the earliest complete copy of the New Testament. Never mind it was both the New Testament and the Old Testament ever discovered. Now, it's interesting. He was able to persuade the monks there at St. Catherine's, through probably not the greatest honesty, that he would borrow these manuscripts. And having taken them, he took them back and painstakingly copied them and then presented them as a gift to the Tsar of Russia who had financed his trip. And um, with, with, uh, with amazing brazenness and irony, the Tsar of Russia actually financed a copy of the Codex uh, Sinaiticus to be sent back to the monastery at St. Catherine's. <laughs> and eventually, um, the monks did agree to sell for some 9,000 rubles the, uh, the manuscripts to the Russians. Um, as an interesting aside, in the early 20th century, the Russians decided they didn't really want the manuscript any longer. They decided they would sell it to the highest bidder for 200,000 British pounds. Um, that was their minimum. Um, well, when, when Sir uh, Kenyon, Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was the curator of the British Museum, found out that it was for sale, he said, we have to buy this. Let's offer them 100,000. I think they offered them 60,000. The Russians said, we won't take less than 100,000 pounds. This was in the height of the Depression. And the only way the British Museum could afford to get this codex would be if they raised the funds. And so they actually went in-gathering, door-to-door around England, asking the impoverished nation to donate a few pounds, a few pence here and there to buy the Codex Sinaiticus. And with the money they raised door-to-door in England, the British Museum bought the Codex from the Russians. It arrived in London in a taxi, accompanied by a daily news reporter, a newspaper reporter. Very interesting, very interesting history of where, how that got to where it is now in the British Museum. So what about this claim that the books of the New Testament were written between 80, 50 and 100? Now there was evidence, we believe, that the, uh, the Codex 
indicated the entire New Testament had been, uh, had been dated back at least as far as the early 4th century. In fact, the story of the Codex is something like this. The books of the New Testament were written between the end of the, the first century, right? Between 80, 50, and 100. And this is what the Bible says. Second Peter 1.21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God sp- spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, right? The Bible is not simply a book of literature or a collection of writings like any other document. It is actually a document that is divinely inspired. The Bible here says that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Bible does not pretend that it is a, it is a verbal word-by-word uh, word dictation of God's thoughts or words. No, the Bible says that God inspired men, and those men wrote or they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There's a big difference between having the thoughts being inspired by the Holy Spirit and having the words being dictated by the Holy Spirit. Do you understand the difference between those two thoughts? On the one hand, if the words are dictated by the Holy Spirit, then every single word is, is, in, is uh, necessary in order for it to remain inspired, right? If we were to have some copy error in, through the centuries that would introduce a different word than that which was used by the original prophet, it would no longer be the Word of God because it would now be changed in a, in a single word. If it was the inspired Word of God, we should also recognize that we would expect that the style and the grammar would be consistent and perfect throughout, wouldn't it? But the reality is, if we look at the manuscripts, we find that the, the, just like when you write something or I write something, if you know someone well, you can sort of tell when they've written it or they've copied it from someone else, right? Those teachers here, don't you know? Don't you know when someone's written something or when they've copied it off Wikipedia, right? Uh, we know, because you can, you can get to know people's style of writing. And, and certainly throughout the New Testament particularly, you can see the style of the Greek writers. Paul wrote in a very different way than some of, let's say, Peter wrote. Um, and not all Paul's writings are exactly the same, because he even talks about the scribes that he used to write. Right? Correct? He, he used scribes because... We believe he may have had an eye problem, though he's well-educated. He probably couldn't always do all his own writing. So he would, he would note sometimes this farewell or this, this pa- passage I've written with my own hand. The rest of his epistle had been written by his, one of his scribes. And the, the style or the, the, the way the grammar was used was different depending on who was writing. This is very important for us to understand. The Bible does not pretend to be a dictated Word of God, word by word. Let me, let me say it this way and see if you can understand this. The, the Bible writers were God's penmen, not His pen. Does that make sense? The Bible writers were God's penmen, not His pen. Now, there's something else very important about this. Very important. Let's assume, let's assume if we believe in verbal inspiration that every word was dictated by the Holy Spirit, not used you know, by humans thinking of the best way to express the thoughts God gave them. Let's assume that it was verbal inspiration. This would require any translation of the Bible, are you with me? To be undertaken by someone as equally inspired as the original author, right? If God's words were verbally, word by word inspired, and that's the way He wanted to communicate to us, we would not be able to read God's word unless either we read it in the original languages or we had equally inspired translators. 
And the reality is that um, I don't believe translators are equally inspired with the Bible writers. The reality is that God's, God, God's Word has, in, has inspired the thoughts and there was a human element of finding the right grammar and the right vocabulary, writing it down. God protected it, yes. God corrected sometimes, just like when the prophet came to David and said, okay, build the temple, and then he came back and he corrected himself, right? When, when you're a prophet, you have a gift. You have the ability to correct. God's going to make sure the message is given in the right thoughts, but not necessarily the words, not necessarily verbal inspiration. Very important. Our understanding of how we, the Bible is inspired will affect how we understand it and interpret it. Prophecies came never, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You can tell I've, I've, uh, I've read the King James Version a lot, and when I get other translations, it sometimes tangles my tongue. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, our scripture for today. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Notice with me, this is very important. Peter now is talking about his beloved brother Paul. It's nice that he used an endearing term here, right? Because he's going to sort of give a little bit of a criticism of his writings. He says here, as also our beloved brother Paul has written to you some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. Peter here is confessing that there are some things in the Bible that need to be understood properly. They need to be interpreted properly, right? And he's telling us that unless we do so, unless we understand them properly, we could have fatal consequences, to their own destruction, he says. And this afternoon, we're going to be talking more about some simple principles of how to interpret the Bible, simple principles of how to understand the Scriptures. But I want you to notice something here. This is Peter writing. We believe this is early still in, in Christian history, still within the first century A.D. And notice what he says here. He says, Our beloved Paul has written to you some things hard to understand. What's he talking about? He's talking about Paul's epistles, Right? He's talking about perhaps the Corinthians, perhaps the Galatians, I don't know exactly, but he's talking about some of Paul's letters, which we assume we have still today. We know we don't have all of Paul's writings. Um, in the first letter of the Corinthians, which we have in our Bibles, he talks about having written to them already, which means 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians, just so you get that straight. Um, so we know we don't have all of, the Bible in the, uh, all of Paul's writings in the Bible canon. But Peter here makes an important statement, a very interesting statement. He says, which some people, uh, you know, untaught and unstable, twist to their own destruction as they do also the what? What word does he use? The rest of the scriptures. What is Peter doing here in the first century? What is he doing? He is including Paul's letters with the rest of the scriptures. Can you believe it? You see, the critics of the Bible said, no, the New Testament canon was, was formed like three, four hundred years after the time of Christ. The Christians didn't agree on, on, on who wrote the Bible or how it was written or any of those things in the early church. Peter here gives us evidence that early Christians actually already began to understand some of the sacred writings to be, to be canonical, you might say, to be inspired and authentic and authoritative as they do also the rest 
of the scriptures. The rest of the scriptures. Very important phrase here. You see, the critics said that it was not until the third or fourth or fifth century. But Peter here is giving evidence that there was already even in the early centuries, and even in the first century, an understanding of some of the Bible books being inspired. By the fourth century, we do find the first exact list in the same order of the books. In fact, well, we don't have time to go into all of the accounts of Laodicea and Constantine's uh, role in 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 um, in bringing together the Christian authorities to agree on these things. Um, the the idea that Constantine somehow dictated what the canon of the Constitution uh, of the of the Scripture is is completely unfounded in history. If we look at those conferences that, that he did speak at, it was not as if he had anything to say. But there is this what happened. In, in AD 331, the Emperor Constantine ordered Eusebius of Caesarea to copy 50 accurate manuscripts of the Bible. Now you understand, this is before printing presses, right? We didn't have Bibles that you could just go down to your, your, your Christian book center and buy. Bibles were rare. And by this time, the, the canon of Scripture had been closed. It had been decided. The Christian church was agreed upon what was to be included in the Bible. And Constantine, in 331, ordered Eusebius of Caesarea to copy, to hire expert professional copyists to copy 50 copies of the Bible. Imagine. Can you imagine handwriting the whole Bible? Now, imagine without an ink pen. Imagine with some sort of a, you know, you had to dip it in ink, and it, it wasn't a ballpoint pen. Fifty copies of the Bible, on, and, and Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, he also specified which type of material, vellum, should be used in these fifty copies. These were to be special copies that would be sent out then to all of the Christian world in many different places so that they could be used. The best trained professional scribes were to be hired for this task. And as a result, these 50 copies were, were sent out. One of them remained in the library of Caesarea. That's where Eusebius was from. And the library of Caesarea retained one of those copies. It is now believed, highly probable, that when Caesarea fell to the Arab invaders in the, uh, in the 7th century, in 638, uh, it was highly possible that the copy of the scriptures, commissioned by Constantine and carried out by Eusebius of Caesarea. The copy from the library of Caesarea found its way with a lot of other manuscripts to a nearby remote monastery of St. Catherine's. And therefore, nearly 1,500 years, it remained unrecognized and undiscovered a complete copy of the Old and New Testament, the Codex, Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus, is now believed were probably both part of those 50 copies, two of the 50, but only the Codex Sinaiticus is a complete copy. And this is what Tischendorf discovered there in 1859. Sir Frederick Kenyon, examining the evidence some years later, almost 100 years later, He's the curator of the British Museum in London. The Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in his hands the true Word of God, handed down without essential loss from generation to generation throughout the centuries. Now, some of you are asking, well, that only takes us back to 331. 
That's still almost, that's still 250 years or so after they were written. This afternoon we're going to be looking into history. Because after this, after this discovery, no one could say that the Bible had just been conceived during the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries. It was clear that the same canon, the same books in the same language and essentially the same content existed and was established in 331. So now they began to say, well, you know, that's still 250 years. That's still not apostolic times. You see, before, before this time, before Constantine's time in the Greco-Roman world, the Bible would have been written on papyrus, not vellum. And the critics of the Bible well knew that papyrus could never last for 2,000 years. There's no way they could find evidence that the Bible is written before 331. But they did. And that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon as we look at, at continuing this story. But why is this important? Peter says in his second epistle, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter is writing to those who are doubting and skeptical about this man named Jesus. And Peter says, look, we're not just talking about something that you know, might have been written up by some fictional writer somewhere. We were there. We saw it with our eyes. We heard it with our ears. And he goes on and describes this Mount of Transfiguration. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, look, you can't tell me Jesus wasn't real. You can't tell me Jesus wasn't the Son of God. We heard the Father's voice with our own ears. We saw His glory with our own eyes. And we heard Him affirming that Jesus was His Son with whom He was well pleased. I believe, Peter says, because I was there. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have been there? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have seen with your own eyes? Heard with your own ears? But before we get too envious of what Peter is saying here, let's read on what he says in the next verse. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. The King James says we have the more sure word of prophecy. Wherein you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the day star arises in your hearts. You see, my friends, we might not have been able to be there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, but we have the privilege of holding in our hands a more sure word of prophecy. The Bible, my friends, is more trustworthy than even what our senses could experience. Do you catch that? The Bible is more dependable than even the things we can see or smell or hear. You see, there's a lot of things that can be forged and fake. Just go to Disney World, right? There's a lot of things your senses can experience which, which are not really reality. But the Bible, as we study it through the aid of the Holy Spirit, the Bible is more dependable than even our very senses. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well to take heed until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Who's the morning star? The Bible is all about Jesus, friends. It is. That's why it's important. It's not just an academic argument about some ancient manuscripts. 
It's about whether or not we believe what it tells us about the Son of God, about the hope of salvation, and how we can know Him as our Savior. And uh, the Bible is a trustworthy book. The Old and New Testament prophesied of Christ. The New Testament is His life story. The entire Bible is a revelation of Jesus Christ who came to demonstrate to a planet in rebellion what His Father was really like. The entire Bible is about Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, Jesus said in John five thirty nine, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of Me. You see, this is why the Bible is called the living Word, because the Word of God is able to change lives. It, cha- it carries with it an, a life-transforming power. It gives strength to the weak, courage to the depressed, hope to the dying, all throughout history, we can see the power of the Bible to change lives. And friends, more important than Tischendorf's discovery to me today is the fact that you and I can experience the power of the Bible to change our lives. The lustful, the immoral, enslaved to habits have become pure and clean. Drunkards have been delivered from their drinking, thieves from their stealing, all in the power of the Word of God. You don't have to look very far today to find people who have had their lives transformed, their lives changed by the Word of God. You see, when we study the Word of God faithfully, when we look into its pages, when we experience what it has to say for us, it's impossible for us not to be changed. The Word of God has creative power just as it did in the beginning. That's what Jesus is all about. Jesus is about changing lives and changing people. That's the heart of the Christian religion. It's the heart of the Bible, and it's why we have the Word confirmed to us. And so we have the prophetic Word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place till the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Are you thankful for the Word of God today? Are you thankful that God has given us evidence that we can trust it? You're thankful that no matter what the critics might say, we can experience the Word of God for ourselves today. I'd invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, today we are thankful that we can look at the Word of God not having to wonder, but trusting and believing that it is Your Word spoken in love to us today. Lord, as we as we consider the Jesus the Bible reveals to us, we want to thank You that we have such a Savior, such a Savior who desires all of our hearts, such a Savior that is able to change us through His Word, to make us clean and new, to make us better people, not so that He will love us, but because of the great love that He has shown to us. Oh, Father, today I just want to pray that You'd help us Sometimes the Bibles sit on our shelves and our tables, by our bedside. Help us to value, to treasure the word that you've spoken and given to us. That love letter that you've written, help us not to allow it to go unheeded or unread. But help us, I pray, as your people, to learn and grow more each day 
in the word that you've spoken. We thank you in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.